So the listeners who know me personally have asked me why I don't talk about business on BU. Well, the reason is because it just didn't feel right. I was following my gut, my heart, and my intuition. And now I know that the time is now. So I'm really, really happy about a decision that we made at BU. And that is to create a spinoff channel. So if you go over to bu.supercast.tech, you will discover BU in business. On that platform, I will share all things sales, marketing, team building, attraction marketing, building a business without sacrificing your integrity, your values, your energy, and yourself. I did it the wrong way for a lot of years. I was the queen of hustle and grind. And yes, I did build a very substantial business that I was proud of, but it came at a huge cost. And a lot of women are out there building businesses, sacrificing themselves. I'm excited to share with you what I learned and the evidence I have to prove that that new way of building business as myself, the real version of myself, without being cookie cutter, without sacrificing what really made sense to me in my heart, how that brought me more growth and more income than I had ever made with so much less effort. I've lived through both the before and the after, and I'm excited to teach you everything that I figured out the hard way. I will save you years and years of mistakes and painful lessons. And I realize that now is the time to do that. I'm truly, truly, truly all in with this. And I can't wait to get into that with you and go as deep as you want to go. You'll be able to interact with me. You'll be able to make suggestions about episodes, ask me questions. And I think you're going to be very refreshed by what you see over there. It's not what you're seeing everywhere on social media and in other programs. I'm going to be so real and raw and honest with you. And my greatest joy is going to be empowering women to be hugely successful without feeling drained, without feeling that relationships are strained, and without feeling like there's nothing left for you. There's a better way to build. And I'm going to show you how. So meet me over on Supercast and we'll get started together. There is nothing more inspiring than a woman being unapologetically herself. The answers are all in your heart. She's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting for you to set her free. Welcome to BU Podcast. I'm Jill Herman and I am so glad you're here. I was broke, insecure, and craved approval. But with grit, hustle, and sacrifice, I still built a successful multi-million dollar business. 10 years in, burnout, I slowed down and looked inward. In that silence, I discovered that the same level of success could have come to me with much less effort and so much more joy. That's when I threw out the expectations of the world and chose to unbecome every single thing I thought I was supposed to be. And the real me was uncaged. 
it was far from easy. And in this podcast, I'll offer my entire journey as a roadmap so that if you're ready, you can finally be you. Okay, back with Colleen Cashman. And oh, if you haven't listened to the first part of her story, please go back and listen to that episode. It was, it was super raw, super informative, educational, and I would even say very inspiring. Just know that Colleen is a trusted resource. She's someone I trust and I respect. And I didn't say this in the other episode, but you heard it in the bio that she has a lot of education under her belt. In some circumstances, that doesn't really matter. But in this situation, I do think it does matter because she understands the brain chemistry. She understands the physiology. And now she's going to share with you how since she's decided to be a sober person, she has learned the science behind addiction and sobriety. And she's now helping people create the life that she's creating. So Colleen, let's start with what's happening in the body when someone is drinking. You touched on it a little bit in the other episode, but let's review that. And then I'm just going to let you take it from there on what you want to teach the listeners from that point to when they choose sobriety. And then how do you help your clients? Okay. Well, as we kind of ended on a note where I was getting on my soapbox on the last episode, alcohol use disorder is ultimately a mental health disorder. Our ability to control our use of alcohol, and then it does bleed into other contexts, but our ability to control ourselves deteriorates. That is about brain chemistry, the stop function in our brain doesn't work. So we just gradually over time make more and more bad decisions. And the mental health, we use that term, but what does it mean? It's really about our ability to feel and perceive our environment and our relationships and our goals as positive. So, you know, I knew enough to keep my mouth shut but God, if you could have been inside my head, it was absolute hell. The, the thoughts and the de- self-defeating attitude and the blame, every problem in my life, it, it was just eye roll after eye roll. And again, I probably wasn't rolling my eyes, but in my own psyche, there was just this loud, chaotic, nasty voice that would just kick in from the moment I woke up in the morning. And why does that happen? Well, kind of, you know, for a multitude of reasons, but I can highlight two or three of them. First of all, our brain stops producing dopamine in response to normal everyday activities. In my head, I think it's a really easy way to separate external stimulation from internal. And by external, I mean things you ingest. So we get a dopamine hit when we eat sugar or when we're, you know, drinking caffeine or you know, nicotine can do it or alcohol, any of these things that we put in our body that artificially fires the dopamine. So our brain stops reacting naturally. And so life just becomes more and more black and white. We're seeing our beloved people in our family, but our brain's not responding and our brain's not reacting. So we've got no dopamine. So we've got an imbalance of brain chemistry with the dopamine and other endorphins. Then we've got the stress hormones and 
our cortisol levels end up skyrocketing. But then as you know, from let's say adrenal fatigue, eventually your body can't keep up with the demand. So if cortisol is in demand after you drink every single day, the adrenals just kind of, they give up, they go away. So actually most people that are suffering from good healthy dose of alcohol use disorder have low cortisol levels. And cortisol, even though we associate that with stress, it's actually our get up and go. It's after the adrenaline surge, then the cortisol comes in to give us the energy to do what we need to do. So without that, we just feel unmotivated. So when the dynorphin, which we discussed in the first episode, is released in response to high levels of dopamine, we've got the apathy. Then we've got the cortisol that may be too high or maybe too low. So we're just in a chronic state of negative apathy and stress. And then that becomes, because that's our mindset when everything's happening, that's how we end up creating the stories and the circumstances of our lives. We're narrating them through a really dirty filter. Mm -hmm. And then that builds. You perceive a slight or an insult or a judgment. And then now your mind is stuck in that story. And you're now making new behaviors and actions based on that story that are creating more of the same. Mm -hmm. And I would assume, too, that then when you, because of what you just explained chemically that's going on, then you're also obviously craving a drink and you want to drink, not just for emotional reasons. And then you're probably shaming yourself for that, which is just feeding the beast. Yeah. And and that's where at some point I, I feel like the trajectory of alcohol use disorder, it was a slope, but it was a very, it's kind of like walking outside and not realizing you're on a slope, but then it starts to pick up and it starts to roll down as you know, you're drinking more and more and you're more and more negative. And yeah, it all just, it just spirals out of control. And that is a really good visual. Recovery is an upward spiral and alcohol use disorder is a downward spiral. Both take the same amount of effort, but one of them, you're getting exponential payoffs and one of them, you're just getting worse and worse. You know, the effort it takes to make sure you have enough to drink tonight and to get over, you know, last night's episode and to deal with the fallout. You don't remember this or you said something bad here. You know, the amount of energy and focus that it takes to manage an addiction that's ultimately just spiraling more and more out of control is insane. But we just, we don't see it as that. So how does someone know? If their friends aren't saying anything, their family is not saying anything, there's no type of, not just intervention, but no comments are even being made. They really don't see any damage that's being done out in their outer world. There's no evidence to show that there's a problem. How do they know physically? I don't know how to even ask the question, but besides the feeling of apathy and shame and loneliness and all that, is there any sort of physiological, physical feeling that someone might be feeling who's listening right now and you can say to them, hey, when you feel this, it's probably a sign that you're drinking too much. Well, tolerance would be the most obvious and we hit that in the first episode, but a high tolerance is not a sign of a high functioning liver. It's a sign of brain chemistry being out of whack. So if you are able to drink and need to drink more than you used to, then that is a clear sign that you're sliding down the road. And Colleen, can you have a high tolerance because of your brain chemistry that you're just born with? 
Well, for example, men can metabolize alcohol a lot better than women. You know, that's why we have different drink ratios per hour. And that's why I said, if you used to drink less, so you compare it to yourself, because exactly what you're saying, you can drink, Jill, I've seen you drink half a glass of wine, get tipsy and fall asleep. And meanwhile, I've cleared a bottle and a half of wine and I'm still walking around looking for more. So, but that isn't my natural state. You know, when I first started drinking or when I was drinking on occasion, two glasses was my limit. That's all I drank. And then it became three and then it became four. And I needed to drink the whole bottle in order to experience the same pleasure, Mm -hmm. relaxation, all the stuff that is and is not true about wine. I needed the whole bottle because two glasses would just make me irritated. Yeah. (laughs) So that's making sense to me because I'm learning as you're talking. I'm learning this. So you're saying that if someone listening doesn't have that evidence we talked about, but they're realizing their tolerance is really going up, like they can drink a lot more and have less how would you say it? Well, you're, you're chasing a high and ultimately check in with yourself. Even I knew back in the day when I was drinking that three glasses of wine, I actually was not feeling the pleasure that I would feel, honestly, that I would feel thinking about the first drink. My mouth would salivate and that tick, 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 you know, when you take the cork out of the bottle, that was my high point. Maybe I'd feel good into the first drink, but soon after that, you kind of start feeling numb. And it's if you check in with yourself and you're just aware, but see, that's the problem. I knew I didn't want more than three glasses of wine, but I just didn't have the ability to turn it off. And that's what's so strange. Do you think most people with this disorder are that way? Maybe that's another sign. One, high tolerance. And two, after you've had a couple drinks, you feel like you need to eat more. Like me, I want to eat like the whole sleeve of cookies instead of just three. I want a bag of M&Ms and not just a handful. You think that could be another sign for women to look for? I think we're looking for something that is so obvious. People listening will know what I'm talking about. You know, if you have to Google, do I have a problem with alcohol? The answer is 100% chance yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And we're conditioned in our culture to view alcohol. There's not something wrong with alcohol. There's something wrong with the person. And that's the belief perpetuated by AA that there's, quote, normal drinkers, and then there's alcoholics. And you want to know which camp you're in. You're asking the wrong question. Because just like if you've ever been in an airport and you've seen the Starbucks line wrapped two terminals deep, we all are very comfortable discussing addiction when it comes to caffeine. We wear our coffee addict shirts proud and we're comfortable even more or maybe a little less, but we're comfortable with sugar addiction. I'm a sugar addict. I'm a carb addict. And we throw all this around and then we act surprised that everybody's vulnerable to alcohol addiction. Every single person that drinks is vulnerable. The more you drink, the more you need it, period. You don't have to navel gaze into your childhood to find out you're susceptible to addiction. And that's the problem with AA is that they're kind of, you know, they're on the same side as the drink responsibly campaigns that promote responsible drinking. There's no such thing as responsible cocaine use. There's no such thing as responsible heroin use, and there's no such thing as responsible alcohol. Now, I'm not demonizing alcohol. 
What I'm saying, though, is it's an addictive substance. You're playing with fire. So if you're drinking every single day, you're on course to hit something at some point, um, proverbially or really. And so we're asking the wrong questions. Like if you're drinking alcohol, you're susceptible to addiction, period. Same thing with your coffee. And if you go and you drink coffee every day and then one day you don't have it, then that's a problem. And, you know, you use the sugar analogy quite a bit. And so what I want to say, what the lack of dopamine does in the brain with alcohol, think about it like if you're used to eating high sugar cupcakes and brownies and somebody hands you a blueberry, it doesn't taste sweet. Your brain doesn't respond to that. It's not that the blueberry's not sweet. It's that your brain's like, next, please. Uh, no, you know, totally. Please. But we put alcohol in a separate category because we've normalized it in our culture. It, but it's very logical. The more you drink, the more you need to drink. Same thing with coffee. Same thing with sugar. And I think less so with coffee. In some ways, that example hits a wall because, you know, just because you drink two cups of coffee doesn't mean you're in danger of becoming, you know, a five cup of coffee drinker. It can happen. But what is true is the more coffee you drink, the more you need. So if you are drinking five cups a day and you get up and have one, you're going to have a little bit of withdrawal headache. Mm -hmm. So my first question was asked because one of my kids told me that she can drink a lot of alcohol. And she's like, it's really weird because she's not very big. And she said, it's so weird, mom. Everybody talks about it. She goes, I can drink like the first time she drank, she noticed that. So I wondered if there were some people who just process differently because she said, when I drink, it takes a lot to get me buzzed and a lot to get me drunk. And I thought that was really interesting. So it made me think about that. And then the, the other question I had is, do you, I'm assuming based on what you're saying, you do not buy into the theory that AA has that certain people are born alcoholics, like they're wired to be an alcoholic. And the first time they have alcohol, they'll have a different response than other people. And they will be an alcoholic. I mean, that's, that's essentially what they teach that it's a disease. And my ex husband can't help it because he is wired that way. How do you feel about that? And what do you think the science shows? Well, I love that you asked that question. Because again, I don't think that there's one answer. For sure, the science shows that some people are more vulnerable to addiction, whether it be genetically or from their environment. You know, you spoke of one of your children saying that they could drink more. She probably can. The fallacy of asking the question is then it seems to negate the effects of alcohol. Just because you can drink more and your brain can compensate doesn't mean that it's not addictive. So the more you drink, the more you need to drink. There are definitely people, you know, I remember my first drink of beer being amazing. It was wonderful. And that is what I would say is a risk factor or a, a predictor. But it also is a predictor. Is that my genetics or is that because I had such a wonderful time that night and all the stars were aligned that it created a belief that alcohol is so pleasant, you know, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy or that I need alcohol to have fun. There's no 
just a biological factor or just genetics. You know, it's not just brain chemistry. It's also experiential. And all of our beliefs just pile on each other. Um, I did have a wonderful first drinking experience. And most of my drinking experiences were great for 20 years. So I believed that I need that alcohol was part of that. I believed that alcohol contributed to the good times. Now I'm in those same situations having a fabulous time and there's no alcohol deficiency problem. It's fine and it's great. Does that make sense? It's not just biological. It's all of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It does. So before we get into a bit of coaching for people who are finding themselves in this situation, tell us about sober living. I mean, what is it like for you now to experience life? As I shared in the first episode, the biggest damage to me selfishly and not negating the damage I did to family and friends and kids and all of that was my relationship with myself. I did not have that connection. And the way I feel now, Jill, I feel so capable and confident. And no, every day is not rainbows and sunshine. And I'm not saying that I don't ever have down days or I don't ever get in a mood. That's not it at all. I just have this sense of autonomy and like I'm whole and I'm complete. And if you think about it, I used to believe that I needed alcohol to feel good. So just learning that I don't and that I'm enough. And if I'm home by myself, that I can have a wonderful time and walk my dog and make myself a meal. So how is sober living? It's better than I could have ever imagined. It is not the absence of hangovers. It is not the worry that I'm going to say something stupid. It's not the, I got an Uber everywhere. It's not worrying about being a role model to my children or being engaged or not engaged. No, it is, it is my relationship with myself and it's the greatest gift ever. You know, and that's why I don't ever want to drink alcohol again. I'm not against alcohol. And just like I, I I will tell you, I'll never eat McDonald's again. Well, if I got real hungry and that's all there was, maybe, you know, and so I wouldn't say, oh, I'm never drinking alcohol again, but I don't need to and I don't want to. So I don't worry about it. You know, I'm not attached to the sober identity. Somebody offers me a Diet Coke. No, thanks. I don't drink pop. No biggie. It's not a thing. And alcohol is not a thing now either. You know, I don't struggle to not drink alcohol any more than I struggle to not drink the laundry detergent and to not drink the (laughs) hydrogen peroxide. You know, to me, it's poison. No, thank you. Oh my gosh. I love it. So before you had referenced what it's like to smell when it starts to rain outside, you Mm -hmm. know, so like your senses, is yoga different? Do you feel meditation, is that different? Is your connection to God or spirit or whatever word you use, is that different? And does it have to be a yes? I'm just curious. Yeah, it's hard for me to say a full yes to that because it's it's one of those things where everything's changed and I'm still me. So I find my bandwidth has expanded. My ability to put up with discomfort and be okay with that discomfort has expanded. So do I sit in a lotus position every hour for an hour every day? No. Do I think I should? Probably. Like, I don't know, but I don't, you know, I haven't become some enlightened monk and just walk around in a state of bliss. I don't, I'm still a bitch. So don't cross me. (laughs) 
but it's the, my relationship with myself, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't pray more. I'm still looking for a better connection with my higher power and with God and feeling like I know what's happening and why we're here. I mean, I definitely refer to this situation as earth school, you know, whatever. So it has changed and it hasn't. What about, I would assume sleep is much better. Oh my God. Because I mean, you're really sleeping now. You're finally really sleeping. (gasps) Sleep is better than sex. Oh my God. Like, oh yes, I sleep, you know, eight plus hours a night. And, you know, I still have, I get super jacked up in a positive way. When I'm working on a project, I have some trouble falling asleep occasionally, but I wake up, you know, with drool on my pillow and life is good. And, you know, that's the other thing about alcohol. It disrupts the sleep cycle. Passing out is not the same as sleeping. We're not getting that deep restorative REM sleep. And that's when we process our emotions. That's when our body restores and repairs and regenerates. You know, so I feel like I'm getting younger while looking in the mirror and not necessarily seeing the results. I feel like I could sign up and climb a mountain if I wanted to. Yes, I sleep well. And speaking of looking in the mirror, though, before we started, I told you, you have never looked better. And and if you don't know Colleen, she's beautiful. And you definitely look younger than you chronologically are. However, now... 10 years younger. She has this glow about her. I even showed my husband a picture of you on social media and it was not up close. And I said, look how good she looks. And he goes, she does. And I said, doesn't she look different? But you already looked great. And I described that in my interview with Jen Couch from Sober Sis that the reason I found her is because I ran into a friend at a restaurant and she had the same glow you have. And here's what people don't know about you. You eat so clean. So you already had this plant-based diet, you don't eat junk, you eat so well, and you exercise on a regular basis. And just by getting rid of alcohol, you are glowing and you just look, I would say it's like clean. Isn't that interesting? That's the word I want to use. Yeah, I feel like the glow though is coming from inside the house. The way I feel is is glow. I feel glowing. Even on days where, you know, I'm, you know, dealing with a bunch of crap and frustrated and short, but I I definitely feel it's hard to articulate, to be quite honest. It's hard to articulate because I've changed everything's changed and nothing's changed, you know? Mm-hmm. So how do you help people? What do you do in your program? And what would be aside from signing up, do you suggest that someone listening who says, okay, She's talking about me. Do you suggest that they immediately reach out to someone and say, hey, I need 24-hour support as they're reaching out to you for this program? What would you say is the first step? And number two, how do you help people? Well, I've created a program that I feel like takes the best of what I kind of see as two extremes of sobriety and rejects kind of some of the bullshit. You know, in one camp, you've got where the day one for you is your rock bottom and you're powerless over alcohol, and you need to admit that you know your life has become unmanageable, and you need to go through and find all of your character defects and make amends for everything that's ever gone wrong in your life. You need to make amends, and you need to go you know go to meetings every single day and avoid social situations. And even as I say that disparagingly, there's a lot of good that comes from working that program. And any program works if you work it. I don't have a problem with AA. 
the philosophy, I feel like it kind of feeds into the alcohol problem by separating alcoholics from, quote, normal drinkers. Of course, there are genetic variations and and people that are predisposed to certain things. Of course, there are. However, everybody has the option of becoming with alcohol use disorder. It's available to everyone. You don't even have to try that hard. You just have to drink a little bit every day and you're going to get there. But so that's one camp. And then the other camp is sobriety is rainbows and butterflies on day one. And I honestly think some of that's a function of age. If you're in your 20s and you quit drinking, you're going to bounce really, really high. And, you know, you're not going to experience pause, which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which can last for a couple of years. And I want to stipulate, even if we don't dig deeper into that, pause is still better than alcohol use disorder, but it's a thing. And then the other thing that I don't see out there really at all, except for very generic advice, is the power of what you're putting into your body. You go to an AA meeting, there's donuts and coffee, and you can smoke outside. And those things actually really increase your relapse rate. And you know that's what how they term it, relapse. Um, and relapse is a, a real part of recovery. And you know I've learned that and I know that. But they're promoting the spiritual and emotional work, which is really good. But they're not really understanding and letting people know that this is a function of their brain chemistry, not their personality. And that is how my program is different. The day you decide to quit drinking, that's the most powerful decision you've made in a long time. There's nothing wrong with you or your ability to make good decisions with yourself. Right now or previously, you're just compromised by alcohol use disorder. Remove the use remove the disorder. It's pretty simple math. The belief that there's people who aren't drinking, but they're still dry drunks or they're still alcoholics. No, they're just assholes. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not a function. That's their personality. That's their mental mindset. So my program, I incorporate supplement options. I don't sell supplements, but I provide the research and I you know, tell you what I did. But there's supplements to support the dopamine deficiency, serotonin, adrenal fatigue, all of that stuff. I talk about diet, not because I care if people continue to eat sugar or caffeine. I'm just presenting all of your options so you can make informed decisions. And honestly, if it's not that bad for you, then you probably don't need to worry about sugar and caffeine, you know, but if you're miserable and you want to know what else you can do. So I, I help on the brain chemistry and the, the diet and make sure that you're aware. So at least you're not shooting yourself in the foot and don't even know it. And then I do a lot of mindset work, getting into the beliefs of what you believed about alcohol, what you believe about yourself and breaking down the feelings that we have. There's this belief when you go into AA that, you know, you you stopped developing emotionally at the time of your first drink. Yeah, no, you didn't. Maybe you got some problems, but I didn't stop. I didn't show up on my first day of sobriety, the equivalent of an 18-year-old. That's absolutely not true. So I throw out a lot of those myths and ultimately really empower people and people respond to positive psychology. You know, instead of focusing on the problem so much, you focus on what's right because what you neglect dies and what you pay attention to grows. 
So I do a lot of work with, you know, your strengths and your value system. I do a lot of work with boundaries and codependence. You know, like I said in the first episode, I had huge relationship issues and thought I was heading into another divorce. Turns out I just needed to learn how to set some boundaries and how to communicate for what I need. And he responded like a gem. So a lot of it was just in my own head. Mm. I love what you're doing. And I'm in awe of the whole journey that you went through all this. And now you're turning this into this beautiful mission to help other people. And you're also a certified health coach and nutritionist. And I know that I believe that talking to them about nutrition, et cetera, is like icing made of gold because everyone deserves to know about that, but especially someone who is struggling with this. That's my personal opinion. I know you had said... If people don't feel like they need that, they don't have to take that. But I advise anyone who does this to take that part of it and really think about implementing uh, what she's teaching you about what you're putting in your body. So do you have any, any parting words, Colleen? Any specific books that you recommend? You can mention them to me offline and then we'll I'll put them in the show notes. Any parting words for those listening? What if there's, I'll sort of set this up as there's a mom somewhere in her car right now and she pulled over. And she realizes, oh my God, this is me. And she's very scared. And she has no idea what to do next. Is there anything you'd like to say to her? Yes, I feel like I'm talking to myself. And that is, there's nothing to be afraid of. That even the hard work and digging in, you are ready for this. And it's the best thing that you can ever do. And the hardest part is over the minute you make the call or the minute you know you find a way to whether you sign up for a program and I highly recommend getting accountability. I was very private about the fact that I had quit drinking, but I like I said I had that temporary sponsor and then I hired a coach and that was enough for me to kind of have my hand held, but the transformation was immediate. The fear of the problem is always worse than the actual problem. The fear that you know, you're going to have to quit drinking, or if you tell somebody, then somebody might follow up with you. And oh my God, you know, I don't, I, I might have to put my drink down. Yeah. And it'll be the best thing you've ever done. And it will change everything and also nothing. <laughs> you're still you. And, but the way you feel about you, and that's what's changed for me, the way I feel about me. Externally, my life probably doesn't look that much different, but the way I feel about my life and about my own ability and my own autonomy, it's just nothing better. And the absolute worst day was the day before I decided to quit, not after. Mm, I love that so much. Well, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for taking time to listen. And if you heard this and it resonates with you on any level, let's just say it was something inspiring for you for your life, whether you could relate to Colleen's story or not. Maybe it's just the idea of living for others and not having boundaries and abandoning yourself. But if you have someone in your life who you hear Colleen's story and you know it applies to them, do not be afraid to send this to them. Tell them I'm not judging I love you. I have no idea, but try this on and see see how it fits. And um, you could be helping, you know, change someone's life by sharing it. So please share this episode 
with your friends, probably rather than sending it out directly to people, just put it on social media and text it out to everyone you know and say, hey, I'm just going to throw this out to everybody. Um, so that way people don't feel like they're singled out. But there are people quietly struggling and suffering who deserve this. So again, thanks so much, Colleen Cashman and everyone listening. You are you know, seen and you are heard and you are loved. 